And now, the Street Photography Magazine podcast with your host, Bob Patterson. Welcome back to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine. And if I sound a little different today, and if my guest sounds a little different today, that's because we're outside. I get to, I get to, once again, this is the second time this year, um, I get to interview the person in person. And our guest today is Justin Ide. And by the way, you're going to hear some noise. We're like in, in a park area. We've got birds. We've got people walking by, vehicles. So you're just going to have to deal with it because that's just reality. And uh, speaking of reality, Justin is uh, he was a photojournalist for over 25 years. He's a master storyteller. He's been around the world, worked in over 30 countries. He's worked for uh, the Boston Herald and Harvard University and a Harvard man, I guess, huh? <laughs> I, only, I only worked there. You only worked there. That's right. How do you know somebody's went to Harvard? They tell you. <laughs> I'm kidding. Very I'm good. kidding. And uh, I, I, make, I make fun of Harvard. My dad went to Yale. Oh, really? Yeah. And well, so he was always burning on Harvard. You have every right to make fun of Harvard. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, anyway, so Justin, um, any, well, Justin happens to live in my area. He lives uh, just outside Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, they moved here several years ago, and he just, I don't know, like, like I said, he's an amazing storyteller, and he finds stories anywhere, which we're going to get into. Uh, so if you think there's nothing to shoot where you live, well, then you're wrong, and, and, and he'll tell you why, I guess. So anyway, so welcome, Justin. Thanks. Thank you, Bob, for having me. Um, I, I really appreciate you inviting me on, and um, I, I don't consider myself a street photographer, per se. I'm more of a documentary photographer, and, and so I, I think I can slide in into the uh, street photography podcast with that in mind. Um, I've been a, a photographer for... Uh, basically my whole life. I got my first camera, I think, when I was uh, in eighth grade. Um, my older brother, Joel, uh, gave me a, a Miranda camera. And uh, if you go to my website, I have a picture there that has me with it. Uh, when I was in ninth grade, I, I call it my first international assignment where I was in Tijuana, Mexico on a, on a school trip. Um, so that, that was, uh, that's been sort of the beginning. I've been I've been taking pictures ever since. Tijuana. Yeah. TJ, that's <laughs> that's a crazy place, especially to start photography. Yeah. You still have the photos from there? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Did the camera come home with you? <laughs> uh, the camera did come home with me. Yeah. And I used that for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to ask anyway, your background is photojournalism and one thing that fascinates me is how good and how quick photojournalists are I mean it seems like you don't really think about oh, like shoot don't think and I uh, I just wondered how that has shaped what your shaped your personal style or how you work how you see? I think it's um, it's a it becomes a necessity when you're a photojournalist because you're you're given you know anywhere from one to nine assignments in a day. You know wow. when I started, I started at a very small newspaper in in Fairmont, West Virginia, the Times, West Virginia, and you know some days there were only two photographers, and some days you might be the only photographer on on the staff that day. So. Uh, you know, you might have nine assignments. And so you basically have to go into each assignment, assess it as quickly as possible, find good light or the good story, and then, um, you know, work it over as, as much as you can because you've got to, at the end of the day, you've got to produce something. You've got to have an image you got to have or multiple images to present uh, to the editors back at the newspaper. And so I think that's where the... The idea that a photojournalist can be someone who 
you know, can immediately get to a situation and, and assess it. And it's what we've been doing our, our whole lives. You know, for me, that's over 30 years now I've been sort of doing that and working in that field. Most of the people who listen to our podcast or read our magazine are very amateurs, just like me. And as amateurs, we don't really have the benefit of having like a grisly old pro, you know, <laughs> that we worked under to, you know, show us the ropes or give us advice and tell you what you're doing right and wrong photographically and maybe even work-wise. And so I was just curious that during your career, was there any like one piece of advice, whether it's about photography or life or anything that you got from, say, a mentor? Something that really sticks out in your mind even to this day. It was like a turning point or a, uh, an aha moment that really changed how you looked at something or did something. So one of the uh, one of the things that I always return to um, is came from a night photo editor, John Landers, um, who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he was a night photo editor at the Boston Herald, and um, you know he was because a lot of my shifts were later in the day. He was the person I was reporting to, and uh, you know a lot of times I'd I'd come up with you know either a single picture from a news event or something and I'd be, I'd be really happy. And, uh, you know, and he'd look at it and he'd say, kid, <laughs> no matter what you do today, it's going to be wrapping fish or sitting at the bottom of a birdcage tomorrow. So get out there and make some more pictures. <laughs> and that to me is, it definitely is a photojournalistic mentality. You know, your, your, your pictures may run on the front page tomorrow, but the next day, it's it's gone. It's wrapping fish or sitting at the bottom of a birdcage. Um, and so, you know, I think that to me is, it leads me to believe, you know, people ask, you know, what's your best picture? Well, I always try and think of that and think that my best picture is something I'm going to take sooner rather than something I've already taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that to me is, um, it's just a mentality. You always have to work it. And you have to look and see what you're doing. Um, you know, there's plenty of other people that I've followed, I've met, I've worked with or, or, or had workshops with. Um, but that's sort of one of the things that sticks in my head, uh, all the time. So workshops, huh? Hmm. So what are some of the workshops that you take? Mainly professional or uh, personal? So, uh, as you know, Charlottesville used to host Look 3. Yeah. Um, and, and, and for those who don't know, it was a, a great, you know, week of big love, they called it. Um, and many of the best photographers from around the world would end up here for a week. Um, and uh, so back in 08, uh, I spent a week with Eugene Richards um, here in Charlottesville, uh, working on basically stories, you know, storytelling and what, you know, what it what it takes to put together a story about whatever subject it was. So, um, you know, that was one of the workshops that I, I went to. I, I, I spent a multi-day workshop with Larry Towell in New Jersey. Um, you know, also another guy that I look up to and think as think of someone as a, you know, a, a great person to emulate and, and learn from. Um, I'm, you know, I used to be involved pretty heavily with the National Press Photographers Association, mm-hmm. and they would have yearly meetings or regional meetings, the North, Northeast region, that kind of thing. And so definitely spent a lot of time going to different things and learning from a multitude of other photographers. And the other, the other thing that I was fortunate for, and that's, you know, my biggest thing is that I'm incredibly fortunate. Um, when I worked at Harvard, I, I, I worked there for almost 14 years, and wow. I had access to a lot of different storytellers who came there for certain things. And because I was the the, the director of photography, um, I was always the person they contacted and per, the person that 
you know, they needed to go through. And so, you know, one day I get a call from Time magazine that says, hey, you know, uh, we're sending a photographer to come and, and photograph. Uh, uh, now I can't remember his name. Uh, yeah, that's all right. What's his name? But yeah. And uh, I was like, OK, yeah, OK. Uh, just send me the photographer's name and number and blah, blah, blah. OK, it's James Knockway. And, you know, so then I get to spend literally a day watching him work um, and watching him, you know, how he does things. And and that to me is, you know, that's priceless. That's priceless time, you know, spent, um, you know, and there were multiple others that came and worked. Uh, Amy Tunsing, you know, she came for a National Geographic story and uh, I got to spend a couple of days with her. Um, you know, also someone who's very inspiring and someone that I look up to and, and follow pretty closely. And you got paid for it. And I got paid for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I got paid for it. Even better. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, um, it's something I think everyone can learn from everyone. And it doesn't always have to be a big name person um, because you, you're learning all the time. You know, you're, you're learning is, is essential to improving yourself. And whether it's you're actually doing the photography or whether you're watching someone work or whether you're, um, you know, going to a large workshop with multiple people or you're working one-on-one. The Larry Towell workshop was like with nine people um, for three days in New Jersey. And it was, you know, it was amazing. It was all about storytelling and about sequencing and bringing photos together. And, uh, you know, that's, that's priceless for me. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell us, um, i trying to think how to, how to phrase this, but somebody, somebody wants to be a better storyteller or they want to make sure they're telling stories with their photos. Or, I don't know, let me, let me back up a little bit. Or they they're, they're want to take on a personal project where they're telling the story of something, whatever it is. Is there a framework or... A list of uh, uh, action items or things that most people should keep in mind when trying to tell a story visually. You know, one of the things that I I think is critically important is your your background research and also telling stories about things that you want to tell stories about, things that you're interested in or things that excite you. Because if you're not excited about the subject matter it's going to show in your photos and you know it's just it's really not going to not going to work you have to be passionate about what you're photographing and what story you're trying to tell Mm -hmm. um i've for the last 20 years um i've i have a strong interest in agriculture and food Mm -hmm. and where we get our food from and who provides our food um and, and to me, it, it gels into like this whole climate issue that we're running into now. Um, you know, basically, you know, 15 years ago, if you said, I want to do a story on climate, people say, go talk to Al Gore, but I don't want to really talk to you. Uh-huh. Um, now, climate is a, is a huge story for everyone. Yeah, as and, it should be. And a concern. Um, and for me, that, that starts with the food we eat, you know. The, the food we eat and how we get it. Um, and so that's always been a big passion for, for myself. And so that is is someplace that I'm always going to look to and I'm always going to be gravitated towards. Um, I'm not the biggest uh, sports photographer, um, although, you know, lately I've been I've been hitting up some rodeos. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, is rodeo a sport? Yeah, it probably is a sport. But um, I'm not really there for the pictures of the bulls or the, or the horses or the mutton busting or, or whatever. I'm there to, to capture the, the, the essence of all these people that are, that, are, that are enjoying these. And then I'm also there to potentially meet and work with some uh, guys that are, are cowboys, mm-hmm. you know, guys that are farmers who have uh, large tracts of land here in Virginia and and maybe investigate what I can do um, to bring that story out as part of, you know, a, 
a food or an environmental story. So say, for example, you go, you tend a rodeo. Are there specific things when you get there, is there specific things you're going to look for and make sure you get into the can? Uh, or is it just wide open? And you um, For me, it's yeah. pretty wide open. Yeah. Um, I think once you start making a few pictures, portraits are basically the place where I start, mm -hmm. usually. Um, and I usually, you know, start pretty... I start uh, pretty close to people you know i i typically when i i've been to the rodeo lately um you know i'm using a 28 and a 50 and that's all i have mm -hmm. um two cameras two lenses and um i'm you know i'm gonna be in people's space more or less um and then part of it is just waiting for moments to happen and then um if something does happen or if you s can anticipate something happening basically trying to to work that situation till you see or find what you want. I'd like to take a quick break to thank the Street Photography Magazine subscribers for your support. We couldn't do this without you. You may have noticed that we don't sell advertising or sponsorships in the podcast or inside Street Photography Magazine itself. And that's because we want to be completely objective about the work we publish and the services and gear that we cover. Our only constituent is you, our listeners and readers. So if you like what we're doing, you can support the show by subscribing to Street Photography Magazine. It's only $5 per month, and you can do it by visiting streetphotographymagazine.com slash subscribe. And now back to the show. Yeah, when you show up to a situation like that, and I'm asking this for a personal reason, you go there, probably 99% of the people in the place are strangers. Yeah. They don't know you. They don't know what you're doing or why you're there. You're carrying two cameras around. How do you break the ice? Um. <laughs> Myself, I'm, I'm rather shy. Yeah. And, and I start to shoot, and I think, maybe that's not the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, uh... I would say a journalist, it's not the best place for a, a shy person, you know, being a, yeah. a journalist. You have to be willing to um, put yourself out there, explain what you're trying to do in a very short sort of elevator pitch type of m manner. Mm -hmm. And um, I typically carry uh, my cards with me. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times if someone is questioning me, what am I doing? Whatever. I'll hand him my card, which I think legitimizes what I'm doing. I'm not just uh, some creeper, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing stuff, and and that that gives them the chance to contact me afterwards, also, and and I share photos with people in that way. Um, and so, yeah, you have to sort of be out there and willing to sort of break the ice and and, and approach it as if there is no ice. You know, that's that's the big thing that. Um, you, you just can't. You, it's like, uh, you know, doing the cold water plunge nowadays. You just got to get in and do it. There's there's no way out, other way out of it. No. I was recently in D.C. Uh, for a Leica workshop yeah. two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, it was, I don't know, there were probably 12 or 13 people on the workshop. Um, it was one day of shooting and, uh, and then editing. Um, afterwards the next day and uh, I think out of all the 12 people I, and, and sort of what we did we a lot of people went out to different things events um, I was the only person that went inside an actual building mm. um, and I went inside a, a I, we we're in this uh, market district and I you know I saw this, this steam coming out of this house or this building and this door and I stuck my head in and whatever and I just walked in and I just started taking pictures. Um, they were making tofu. They were um, Hispanic men. I'm not sure where, what country they were from, but they were all speaking Spanish. I speak some Spanish, so I said, "Hey, I, I just want to take some pictures." And and then I talked to the jefe, the chief, mm -hmm. gave him my card, said that I'm interested in food and food production or whatever. And then I spent you know 15 or 20 minutes inside the inside this little tofu making place. Um, 
at the market. And, you know, it was just, it was interesting. It was interesting to see. I've never seen tofu made. Um, yeah. uh, so it was, it was just interesting. And again, it's, if you're going to be shy about that, you're not going to, you're going to miss pictures like that, you know? And, and the whole, the whole class, the 11 other people, no one went inside anywhere. You know, they basically, not to put it down, but they took street photos. They, yeah, no. they um, yeah. did that. And that's just sort of, uh, I, I can't do that. I'm not very good at that. Um, so, uh, yeah, my, mine is uh, knocking on people's doors and imposing myself on them. In a, in a gentle manner. In a gentle, peaceful manner. All right. So I, I'm going to say something that's going to sound really stupid. But, all right. So you said, I approach it like there's no ice. No I-C-E, only I-D-E. <laughs> That's how he spells his last name. Yep. I know, that was dumb. I had it's, to get uh, it out of my system. Though. No, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the, that's the, the you know, mentality you have to take. Um, it's funny, I have a good friend uh, who uh, was a firefighter. We can talk about that, but uh, yeah. yesterday was the anniversary of his death. He was killed, killed on duty five years ago yesterday. Oh, and uh, he was a presenter at, uh, at one of a firefighter conference that I went to and I photographed for and uh, he was talking to some people and during his presentation he says you know what's an icebreaker he says an icebreaker is just you know it's something he said uh, you know here's an icebreaker for you how much does a polar bear weigh <laughs> I don't know how much I don't know either an awful lot but there's your ice is broken <laughs> and that's that's sort of his mentality was um, you know you just have to you have to be willing to talk and and open yourself up and then you're good yeah that makes sense we talked about stories and the last time we talked we uh, we met for, for coffee uh, a couple months ago now yeah and uh, and I, I even made the comment I said you seem to find a story everywhere uh, we'll talk more about a specific work as we move on but uh, Justin seems to find a story just about anywhere, and I, I liked, I liked your re reply. I don't know if you remember mm. about the lights. I mean, yeah, it, and it's something I think about all the time. You know, yeah. I, I think in a in an airplane when you're taking off at night and you're going over, and you look at all the lights down there, and every single one of those lights is is a story. Like every person you see has a story. The the question or the um, the specific is to think about how to find out about that story and then how to follow up with it, how to bring it out of them. But every single person you see has a story. And um, so they're they're out there. Don't, you know, I don't care if you live in a town that's 10 people or 10,000 people. There are stories there for every single one of them. It's just a case of finding the right ones, finding finding ones that excite you because then your pictures are going to be passionate and your pictures are going to be important to you. And then, you know, telling their story. And, uh, you know, it's funny, at the Like Academy, I, 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 uh, I took it with Michael Robinson Chavez, who's, um, who's a friend of mine. He's a Washington Post photographer. He's in Hawaii right now doing a climate story for uh, the Washington Post. Um, but we worked together on the streets in Boston. He was at the Boston Herald, uh, Boston Globe, and I was at the Herald. Mm -hmm. And so I've known him for twenty plus years. Um, but one of the one of the things he said to me, which stuck to me, and I, I wrote it down, is, um, you know, being responsible to the subject is just as important as your pictures. Mm -hmm. So, telling their stories and being honest and accurate is is just as important as the pictures that you make um and you know that's that that really stuck with me that quote of you know being responsible to the subjects is important and he thinks that is a that's one of his primary motivators you know when he's trying to tell a story is to be responsible to the subject whether it's a sea turtle or whether it's you know a mother of three or or whatever he's always remembering that the important part of it is being responsible to that subject. Yeah, that's a very good point. 
Uh, and that's one we stress when we give people advice on doing stories for the magazine is to be respectful. Mm-hmm. Of the sub- their subjects are all strangers on the street generally, yep. and you know don't you know don't wait around for some guy to bend over and take a picture of his butt crack. You know, right. I mean that's yeah, it's not it's not respectful. No, there's no need for it, and uh, yeah, I mean it's a. Uh, and as a photojournalist, you um, you run a fine line there a lot of times, where uh, you'll you'll get into a space where things might be happening that um, are 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 gratuitous or they're mm-hmm. evil. Um, a lot of times, you take the picture and then you know decide le- later whether to publish it. You know, right now. We're talking in the time when, you know, the Gaza and Israeli conflict is, you know, really, really out there right now, like high end. And there are pictures that are coming out that are just absolutely horrific. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things that you would never conceive of taking pictures of. But, um, you know, it also, you know, you, you, you have to do what you have to do. And if that's part of the story, then that's, that's part of the story. Yeah, I was at uh, Focus on a Story last year up in D.C. And they had a woman on who was a uh, photojournalist in uh, Ukraine. Matter of fact, she was there during the conference and she was speaking remotely and she showed some of her, uh, showed some of her work. And I suspect none of it was ever published because it was so horrific to really see what actually happens yeah well Lindsay Lindsay Adario who who, who was over there quite frequently you know she uh, she's another photographer that I I follow I don't know her um, but I follow and and sort of um, you know think is is a great person to sort of emulate or learn from just simply from afar but you know she got a lot of flack for a a picture of a dead family, um, mm-hmm. you know, but she, she came under shelling. There's video of it where she came under shelling. And once it came out, you know, she turned around and there they were. And, and I think that the New York times published it. She was working for the New York times. Um, and I know they got a lot of flack for it, but you know, it was, it was early on in the, in the, uh, in the conflict. And, you know, it was, it was storytelling. You know, yeah, you can't you can't look away from it, um, and you can't unsee it either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this these were very moving. She was actually almost breaking up as she was talking about what yeah. happened in these situations and what she saw. And yeah. how, I mean, how can you not? Yeah, it's a uh, it's uh, definitely um, a tough world. Can be a tough world. And you hear a little bit of noise in the background. We we're right next to a building with some roofers. And we're just going to keep going. Because, like I said, this is real life. <laughs> yeah, anyway, sorry sorry, sorry to break up your train of thought. I, I, I want to go back to something. Um, you are talking about the, if you're not passionate about your subject, you know, your photos aren't going to be as good or they're not, they're not going to show that passion. And, but one thing a lot of people get wrapped up in is that they when they look at their own work you were just talking about it you feel the emotion you felt when you took the photo mm-hmm. and the passion how do you know if others see that in that work as well um that's a good question i i think you you have to come at it from a humanitarian sort of um standpoint where just humanly if someone is if if i'm touched by it i'm going to expect that other people are going to be touched by it um you know part of that is a learned uh i think a learned process that i've gone through over years and years and years of work um and you know it might it it also changes all the time um Odd story now is that um, I got a little Kodak uh, negative scanner, mm-hmm. and I've been 
you know, I've been dragging negatives around for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I've started going through them in the last few days. And, uh, and, uh, when I was in Boston at the Herald, I covered a lot of fires. And, you know, one of the things that covering fires, you know, it was for the newspaper, they wanted to see action. They wanted to see fire or ladders being thrown or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I was always interested in the faces of the firefighters, generally when they came out of the building after they're, you know, they're exhausted, they're whipped. They can't even, they don't even realize them. They're taking their picture. Um, and recently I, I scanned, you know, 20 of these pictures and put them up on a, on a, a Boston fire Facebook group and my Facebook just blew up because really? of the people the the connection to these people some of them are have already passed away some of them are at the chief level in the department now and, and these pictures were taken when they were probies or brand new firefighters um, and so it's really hmm. interesting to see the the response to these photos that were basically you know close-up portrait shots of these guys after they've been working and the response is is touching and when i was taking the photos you know i i was taking the photos because i was i admired them i thought they looked you know heroic i thought it was it was it was something that was touching to me those photos were never published then and and they probably then they wouldn't have been for the for the newspaper purpose but for for them now their meaning is is immense for all these guys sure. that, that know them or knew them or worked with them and uh so it's it's really been a for me a a positive response to something that you know it makes me happy i've been dragging the negatives around for for quite some time yeah yeah and it's Nice, you kept them organized enough that you could find them. <laughs> yeah, some of them. <laughs> some of, some of them I have. Uh, I have specific dates and times. Others yeah. I have sort of. Yeah, this is this is the town it happened in. I'm not sure when it was. But. <laughs> when you do so much of it. But speaking of firefighters, we we need to talk about your experience as a firefighter. Yeah, because I uh, I find that's very interesting. So it, yeah, when I was in when I was in Boston, I spent a lot of time chasing fires because um we had this thing called the cruiser shift which was um you basically sat in a in a in your car with a with a police scanner and fire scanner and listening to all the different channels and uh your job was basically to just sit in the worst parts of the city and 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 wait for stuff to happen whether it's a shooting stabbing or a fire um and uh you know one of the one of the old adages of the Boston Herald at that time was, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> um, so, and in a town, you know, you had the Herald and you had the Globe. And so there was this immense competition between the photographers um, and between the, the two newspapers. And so if, you know, if a, a huge fire happened in, in Dorchester, you know, as a as a herald photographer you had to have something from it because you certainly knew the globe was going to have something from it because the globe was located closer to dorchester than uh, than the herald was and so yeah. uh, you knew they were going to have somebody on it so um yeah and then fast forward to when we moved here to virginia and we moved into free union um which was uh the middle of nowhere with no cell phone service and no internet connection. I was, um, I was attempting to be a freelance photographer, but without a cell phone service or internet connection in free union, I was looking for the best place to go. And, um, the Crozet volunteer fire department had free internet. Um, and so I started hanging around there. Um, and one thing led to the next, I became an EMT, and then I was hired uh, as a firefighter in the city of Waynesboro. So uh, from, uh, let's see, from January 2016 to uh, October 2021, I was, I was a paid firefighter in the city of Waynesboro. And I was a volunteer in Albemarle County um, as a firefighter. So uh, 
Yeah, I was. It, it's a perfect job in a lot of respects, especially if you want to be a photographer, because um, you work ten days a month, and so uh, uh-huh. you know your schedule was such that you could you had had time to pursue other things. Um, there, there's not a firefighter out there that has only firefighter as their job. Uh, I'll just tell you, they work hard, yeah. and then they go home and they work hard at another job, mm. whether it's construction or whether it's um, engineering or anything. There, there, there are a hardworking bunch of guys. Wow, and you were an EMT too, huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a, a requirement nowadays. Oh, you know, just about anywhere, you've got to be at least an EMT. Wow. And so you were a first responder. Mm-hmm. What's that like? To be the first person in a bad situation. I mean, is it, I mean, is, is there just a lot of adrenaline involved? Fear? There's definitely a lot of adrenaline. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll readily admit I've got a little bit of ADHD. And so, <laughs> um, it, for, for, I, I think photography is great for that. You know, that's probably yeah. one of the reasons why I'm a, a, a decent photographer is because I'm always, you know, being dazzled by shiny objects here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but firefighting is very much the same way, you know, where you're you at one minute you could be, you know, laying in bed or sitting down watching TV. And at the next minute, you've got to be going at, you know, 150 percent because someone's life is on the line, whether it's. Um, because of a fire, because of a medical emergency, or, or whatever, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a, a little bit of adrenaline gives you a, a rush, um, and it's also service, you know. To me, um, and, and I think for me, service is is a big uh, cornerstone to to my personality and who I am. Um, you know, I did. Uh, a month, uh, I did six weeks of service uh, with the Youth Conservation Corps when I was in high school, mm. um, where I lived uh, on a tent in the in the Smoky Mountains and helped rebuild a trail. Um, I after um, after college, I did two years in the Peace Corps oh. um, as a as a Peace Corps volunteer in Guatemala. Um, so service is is something that has been a cornerstone of my life and. and I see as a way of giving back and of helping other people who, um, who, who basically need help. And when someone's calling the fire department, they they've basically, they've, they've reached their wits ends. They're yeah. sort of, they're, they're at the, they're at the wits end and, and they're looking for someone to come help them. And so that was also, you know, one of the things that made me admire these guys that I was photographing back in Boston and also drew me into, becoming a firefighter is that compassion that service that willingness to try and be there and help someone in their worst moments and you know sometimes you're all they need um because they need a a, and oftentimes you're all they need because they need just a cool head um they might not be critically ill or they might not be um you know, in a burning building, but they need someone with a cool head to tell them, okay, this is the way out and you're going to be fine. But, yeah. And so building that up mm-hmm. is, is, you know, part of what I've been able to do through my career in photography. And so I think going into the fire service for that stint for me was just another, another iteration of serving the community Wow. And uh, speaking of first responders, we had two incidents in our little town over the last five years. were bad. Five years ago, we had, we were essentially invaded by white supremacists. Unite the Right Rally, they called it. And then just about a year ago, we had a young man basically assassinate three football players on a, on a bus. And you were there for both of those. I mean, like right after. Yeah, my, my, uh, my daughter 
Uh, so, Dad, maybe this stuff is following you. <laughs> In this little town. Yeah, it was, um, the, the Unite the Right rally was, um, it was interesting. I, uh, the Friday night, it started with a, a torch, tiki torch walk on uh, UVA grounds, and I didn't know about it. I was actually on the job in Waynesboro. Oh. It was my last day of what we called the trick. You, in, in, in our, in there and here in Charlottesville also they work. They work a day, then you're off a day, work a day, off a day, oh. work a day, and then off four days. And so that's your, that's your trick. And I was working Friday night in, uh, I was working Friday in Waynesboro and I got a phone call from Jim Borg, who is um, a guy I used to work with in Boston. He was a, a Reuters photographer, is a Reuters photographer, but he was the Boston-based Reuters photographer at the time uh, when, when I lived there. But now he's, uh, he runs the picture desk in, in DC. And he called me and he said, hey, you know, are you available? Do you, do you know what's going on? And I said, well, I, I didn't know what was going on, but I said, I am available. Um, and that led to the next four days of working for Reuters. And, um, you know, like anything else, I, I try and, uh, one of my adages that I try and live by is, um, early's on time, on time's late, and yeah. late's unacceptable. And Saturday morning, um, August 12th, it was scheduled to go off at noon and that's when things were supposed to happen but i got down there at like 9:30 because i figured you know mm -hmm. it's better to be early and uh yeah by by noon it was it was rip roaring and it was you know out of hand the police were i think unprepared and and uh and there was a lot of things that that happened that just it and it started to happen like at 10 o'clock you know if you look at your XF data on, on the phone, on the, on the cameras. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty harrowing. And then, um, when Heather Heyer was killed, I was like two blocks away. Oh. I came running up. I heard it on a, on a police scanner that I had with me because I, again, going back to those newspaper routes, um, I heard that something had happened. I ran up the mall. And I saw Ryan Kelly, who took the Pulitzer Prize winning photo, um, and he was white as a ghost and sort of, I think, in shock. And he just sort of like pointed down there. Uh -huh. um, and so I ran down that way and, and uh, yeah, made pictures there, made pictures that day, uh, and then continued to make pictures the next three days after uh, when Jason Kessler was, was chased and knocked over and all that. So... Did he, was he the guy they chased in uh, the parking garage? Uh, yeah, he was yeah. And not not the one that was chased and got beat. He was uh, uh, he was the one who started who who was the guy behind the the Unite the Right rally. Oh, okay. He's the one who who petitioned for the to okay. hold the thing okay. there. And um, so yeah, it was uh, it was kind of crazy, you know. And it's not every day you see David Duke. Um, <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, and then more recently, last November, I uh, I was no longer working in the fire department, but um, I still get alerts and things, and I heard that there was a shooting on campus. Mm -hmm. um, it was on a Sunday night. I didn't go. Um, I didn't go at that point, but my wife worked at the university at the time, and so the next morning when she got up to go to work, which was typically, you know. 6 six thirty, I decided well I'm gonna I'm just gonna go up and look around and uh, I went to the area where the shooting was they still had it all cordoned off the bus was still uh, there I made a few pictures here and there and then I heard the news that they were gonna have a press conference and uh, I think one of the one of the things that I do well and and it goes into the question you asked before about breaking the ice or whatever is just act like you belong, you know, you know, act like you belong. And, um, you know, it's always, it's always easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. Yep. Um, the minute you give someone the chance to say no, they're, they're probably going to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's been my experience, you know, throughout 
life as a photographer is that yeah take the picture first and if somebody gets in your face and has a problem then you can you know discuss it but at least you have the pictures but anyway so i heard that there was a, a news conference going on i walked in um room full of people by now national media had a, had descended upon Charlottesville. um and uh i saw a washington post reporter and i i just I didn't know them, but I, I knew them by their badge. And I asked them, hey, do you have a photographer? They're like, no, they didn't send a photographer down. And so I immediately <laughs> I immediately called a, a photographer I know, Jonathan Newton, who works for the Washington Post, who I also met at a workshop many, many, many years ago, um, but have been in touch with one of the greatest sports photographers around. Um, also really a great um you know, he follows NASA. Everything's rockets is, is Jonathan Newton for the Washington Post. I called him and I said, hey, can you give me the number to the to the picture desk? I'm here at this press conference. And he was actually getting on a plane, but he sent me that stuff and I contacted them. And then, you know, they worked me the next two days or three days or something. Um, so, yeah, part of it was um, part of it was my journalistic history that led me to, to both those stories. Part of it was connections to the journalism world that mm -hmm. I've had from the past. And then part of it was just sort of a little spidey sense of, you know, um, you know, this might be happening. So I'm going to go and, you know, make my way and not cross any police lines, but, um, you know, do, do whatever I could to, to try and tell the story. Yeah. I remember you made a photo that most people wouldn't have thought of. You made that panorama. Yeah. Of the entire. Yeah, that uh, night, Monday, yeah. Monday evening, the uh, the whole student body gathered, um, and they were uh, they had a basically just a coming together, a morning. Yeah. And uh, they were adamant that they didn't want any press or media, um, and they told us to step back, which which. Which we did. We all did. There was there yeah. was media there from multiple different places, um, but it was just it was a powerful moment because there was a lot going on. They were sitting, they were standing, they were holding candles or 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 lights from their phones and and stuff, and it was all happening in complete silence. And uh, I stepped back and and I made a panoramic picture. Um, I did two attempts, five frames each. Um, the first one actually came out better than the second one. Uh -huh. And so um, I stitched them together and yeah, it got it got play and then it got picked up by Time Magazine as one of their mm -hmm. top 100 photos of 2022. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely a storytelling image and one that I'm I'm proud of. Not a lot of people have seen it because it it was in that time November December where no one pays attention to to media or magazines or you know this and that and whatever and so in the story um you know it's it's hard it's sad to say but the story was a it was a national story for a blip and then it yeah. was you know then it wasn't yeah. because of because we live in this society where multiple shootings is not abnormal no and so uh but yeah it's a picture i'm really proud of and uh um it's uh yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. Is there is there one story in your life that really stands out? Uh, let me tell you about the wrapping fish. Yeah, <laughs> no, the, right, the, the fish. next one. That's right. The That's next, right. The next story. The story. You said picture. You when you talk yeah, about yeah, the yeah. fish wrap, you said. Picture. I mean, there's there's a ton of stories. Yeah, I've uh, I uh, I hate to dwell on bad things, but you know, yeah. I went to. I went to Haiti after the earthquake Ooh, in 2010. You know, that yeah. that's an incredible story. I went to the Congo to do a story on rape and sexual <sighs> violence as a, a weapon of war. Um, I, yeah, those are, those are two that stand out as sad, you know. But I also went, um, I went to Sabbath Day Lake, Maine, um, which is the only... Um, only alive community of shakers. Um, there are there are only three shakers in the world um, now. People who are actually religious called shakers. Really? Yeah, because their 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 community was based on you either had to be um, come into it and they, and they 
they brought a lot of orphans into becoming shakers and stuff because they took care of them. Um, or you had to um, convert to being a shaker. And uh, when I was there in, it was probably 97, um, there were six. Wow. Uh, but since one has left the order and two have died. And so there's three left. Um, that, and they all live in Sabbath Day Lake, uh, Maine. So I spent a couple, I spent a couple different weekends up there with them photographing them, which was just an amazing thing. It's like, you know, photographing a unicorn or, or something. These, <sighs> they, they're literally three. They're, yeah, religiously, they're, they're pretty small and they're not getting any bigger. I guess not. No. Nope. If there's only three and I imagine they're older. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, hey, before we go, um, I think I'd like to talk about what you're doing now because you're doing some very interesting things. If if you're interested in talking about your business, yeah, um, uh, I'm trying to as as difficult as it is. I'm trying to uh, move myself out of the daily journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to call it a rut, but the daily journalism gig and into a more um, long-form story and potentially commercially viable things. Um, documentary photography for um, companies or organizations that is that are, are agriculture-related or food-related, um, you know, and that's why I've been updating my website and and sort of narrowing it down. Uh, we were talking earlier, it's so hard to edit your own photos. And so I've been working with a wonderful person um, who's been helping me narrow the focus of my website to, to promote it more to um, larger organizations for commercial work rather than um, the one-off, you mm -hmm. know. But I'll always end up doing that. I, I, I shot an assignment for the Washington Post yesterday. Oh, you did? Um, okay. So, it's uh it's it's and, and it was it's a great assignment it's just a portrait but it was you know wonderful meeting the person and and you know seeing them and and it was you know another opportunity to meet meet someone and and basically again you know show them the respect that they deserve as as the person that they are so was it was it in today's paper uh no it hasn't hasn't run oh, yet. oh okay yeah i'm not sure when it's going to run it's okay. uh for the for the future yeah, I read the um, post every day. So. Do you? Yeah. Well, a digital version. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be there probably none until after uh, this weekend. Oh, okay. But, but it'll, it'll catch your eye. Oh, good, good. All right. I, uh, I'm going to look for it. So, <laughs> But you're also doing family documentary. I am. Which I find fascinating, and the work is amazing. I appreciate I, it. Uh, you know, you, you talked about the, the cowboys. You did a, one on a family yep. in their, their farm. And there was a photo you made of a little girl with her horse. Uh -huh. yeah. I imagine that's going to be a family treasure. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, that's what I'm always trying to do, especially with the family documentary work, which I think is relatively uh, relatively new here or, or un, uh, unheard of a little bit. But, yeah, doing, doing that, again, is... Um, you know, just like the firefighters, these people—they see these pictures thirty years later, and they're and they're yeah. they're basically taken aback, and they're they're shocked, and they're uh, touched by them. And I think families—you know, everybody's got a phone now, and everybody's got a yeah. got a, you know—they're they're taking these pictures, but a they're not cataloging them, and b they're not printing them mm -hmm. um, or putting them anywhere, and they're not capturing these moments between kids and families and and parents and siblings and and things that are meaningful today but will be so much more meaningful 10 20 30 years from now mm -hmm. um you know it's uh it, it's kind of funny in our house we have a i have a eyed family reunion photo from july of 1903 and it's wow um you know it's just um a bunch of eyes my great 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 grandfathers in there um and it's you know it's it's crazy but it's just this big you know group shot of everybody um and 
you know, that was the that was the documentary photography of the day. Um, but now I think there's there's so much more that can be had. Sorry for the pause there. We looks like we've got a either a chainsaw or a weed whacker yeah, weed coming whacker. by. Yeah, we're we're almost done anyway. But uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, in my living room we have a family photo of my grandfather when he was probably four years old. With he had like fifty sisters. I don't know. He had a lot of sisters at him. And uh, but it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful image. Yeah. So. Um, God, I wanted to ask you one more thing. Well, this, this might, might be a good one to be interrupted by a, by a weed whacker. Um, we don't normally talk about gear, but I, I'm interested. I, I know you you kind of switched over to, to Leica, probably to the M, M bodies, you know, yep. manual manual focus. And I'm just interested that, you know, probably when you're in the photojournalism world, you're going to work with something that, probably moves pretty fast like so a lot of newspapers i know use sony's now and you know and personally you had had um, fuji so you, you know you got autofocus and, but now you've got one that makes you move a lot slower yeah is, is that have you just been moving slowly or more carefully anyway because that was your job or does it change how you work when you're doing these these documentary projects it's interesting it has changed a little bit but it's actually a, a change back to what i was used to back when i left the the boston herald and and, and went over to harvard um i had the opportunity harvard had a bunch of nikon gear that they were using and they were doing and uh i i basically dumped all the canon gear i had oh and i purchased i had three Leica m6s and three lenses, so oh. a 35, a 50, and a 90. And for about six or eight years, that's that's what I use primarily for myself. So I shot weddings on, oh. on film. I shot. I was very used to the M series and and and, and that kind of uh, framing and, and focusing and that kind of stuff. So it wasn't. It's not something I haven't mm. known about before. Um, I. And, and it's interesting to think about when you, if you, if you go to my page and look at the stuff from Charlottesville, um, I had Fuji cameras for three days before, oh, really? before the August 12th happened. Oh, wow. Um, I had barely used them. I had two X Pro 2s and three lenses, and, but I had barely used them. And Reuters, um, <laughs> For, for you raw shooters out there, Reuters makes you shoot JPEG. And so uh -huh. you had to, um, it, you know, you had to be right on. Yeah. There was no, no messing with them because you just shot JPEG and you sent the JPEG off to them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was my experience there. I've since um, gotten rid of those and gone to, uh, I have um, I have a couple Canon bodies still. Mm -hmm. And then I also have um, a, a Q2 mm -hmm. and a, a Leica m10r oh nice so yeah they're they're nice and i've been shooting most of the all the rodeo stuff all the most of my most all of my assignments um of late have just been with the q2 and the m10r um you know i did an assignment for the post uh that ran maybe a month or a month or so ago and down in southwest virginia and i i didn't even bring my canon cameras i just brought the the two Leicas and, and three lenses and and uh, it was great. It was a lot of fun. So I, I I'm I'm enjoying going a little bit slower. Yeah. Um, and and working in that more methodical way. Uh, so that's you know that's that's what I do. So most times I have a I always have a Q2 with me, um, and then. Like right now, I have a Q2 and the M10R with, with two lenses, a 50 and a 35. That's all I have. But that's what else do you that's need? All you can, that's all you need. Yeah, yeah exactly. that's true. Well, Justin, uh, before the weed whacker starts up again, why don't you tell us where people can see your work? And of course, we'll have the links to it in, in, in the article. But. So, uh, as you mentioned, I've got two websites, justinide.com. It's J-U-S-T-I-N-I-D-E dot com. 
And that's uh, for my commercial pared-down stuff. Uh, you can see stuff about agriculture portraits. And, and then uh, inside there, there's a few story links to uh, stuff that I've done that's food-related or the Charlottesville stuff is there. And then my documentary photography stuff is uh, for families is at justinidephotography.com. So J-U-S-T-I-N-I-D-E photography.com. And that is um, that shows a few different families that I've photographed uh, recently, and and uh, you know I look to to be doing more of that because again it's it's these pictures are, are so important to people, and, and I'm I'm learning that more and more um, after putting up those pictures this week, and and I'm on Instagram at Justin Eyed Photography, so I, I try and share uh, a few things up there, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's about where they can find me. And my email is justin at justinide.com. Well, thanks again. Yeah, uh, appreciate you. you taking the time to come out on a beautiful sunny day. It is gorgeous. Thank you. Your thoughts about the show go a long way in helping us decide on the guests and the subjects that we include in each episode. So please take a few moments to write a review in Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to stream your podcasts. It helps us know if we're on the right track, and it helps others to find and enjoy the show. The editor of Street Photography Magazine is Ashley Refo, and our audio engineer is Russell Boyd from WeBit Studios, found at webitstudios.co.uk. I'm Bob Patterson, and this is the Street Photography Magazine podcast, a service of Street Photography Magazine. <music>